Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. We're continuing our series of the 1980-90s Batman movies today as we talk about Batman Returns and I'm joined by my friend Nick Menta to talk about this one. Nick, do you have a dirty limerick you can share with us? Josh, I am going to play this stinking podcast like a harp from hell. Thank you for having <laughs> me, by the way. <laughs> oh, that, was, uh, that, that, that was fantastic. Um, <laughs> that's, not, uh, that's not the first time I've done it. <laughs> uh, uh, Batman Returns is the uh, 1992 film, the sequel to uh, 1989's Batman that Nick and I previously talked about on the podcast. It is directed by Tim Burton, uh, written by Daniel Waters. It uh, it picks up uh, a few years later in Gotham and still has Michael Keaton playing our title character, though. Man, th- like, this would like, even push it even further, Nick, as far as like waiting to like actually have Batman make an appearance. Uh, the first is, 35 minutes of this film, I think the title character is in it for four of them. I counted. Which, I mean, I mean look, it's I'm, I'm it, it's just kind of funny that they like did that again. Like we'll talk about like how they this was obviously a movie caught people off guard in, in certain ways, I guess, that uh, Tim Burton like delivered something that people weren't certainly expecting. But I like that like, people at McDonald's, Josh. But 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 I feel like after I feel like after the 1989 movies like I feel like you maybe gets like a studio note that's like you got to put Batman in there sooner because uh, or, or at least Bruce Wayne in there sooner I suppose because uh, like it'll lead off with Pee Wee yeah you don't see you Michael want Batman I get, I'll give you Pee Wee <laughs> you, you don't see Michael Keaton's face for a while in that one and he, he's like oh no I'm gonna like make you wait even longer in uh, the 1992 Batman but uh we, yeah we start off in like a in a flashback where in uh in Batman Returns where these uh, two Gotham City residents Tucker and Esther Cobblepot. They're, they become the parents of a deformed baby, and because they are just, you know, they're too, they're too uh, hoity-toity to have a deformed baby, they, uh, they send them down the, they set, they float them down the river, and uh, the, 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 the baby is found by a family of penguins underneath an abandoned zoo who uh, take him in, and uh, you know, 33 years later, that baby looks like Danny DeVito, or doesn't even really look like Danny DeVito, but looks like something even crazier. I gotta hop in right there. We're, we're led to believe that the penguin is 33 years old in this film. Like Devito, I believe is somewhere in his 40s, but n- not that's neither here nor there. I'm supposed to look at this guy and be like 33, the year of our Lord. He's no. lived he's lived a hard life. He's lived a hard <laughs> life. I mean, I, I don't think you can dispute that. Um, but uh, but yeah. So when we finally pick up, and again, it's it's a while before you actually have some Batman stuff going on in this movie. But uh, we see Gotham philanthropist and uh, all around like uh, you know. Donald guess, Trump stand in? Where, where do you want to go with this? Yeah, I, I, I was going to have some thoughts on that later. Well, actually, you know, there's like Trump parallels with him and honestly with the penguin and the way he's run as a political candidate, I would say. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, didn't he have some other nickname at some point? I, and I was forgetting what it was, and I, I, I'm not seeing it on Wikipedia, but I thought there was some other nickname that Mac. Oh, the hero. Isn't he like the hero of Gotham or something? Don't they? Something, something to that effect. He, he's like dubs himself something like that. And I'm just like, I, and I, I'm forgetting what it was. But yeah, it's his name is Max Shrek. He's played by Christopher Walken, and he wants to like build some kind of power plant to suck all of Gotham's energy because that's a, a perfectly acceptable goal for a villain in a in a superhero movie. Um, and uh, yeah, so just to be clear, what we're talking about here is a genocide and power plant scheme. What is the plot of Batman Returns? Well, first of all, we're going to try to build a power plant. We're going to suck the energy out of it. And then when that fails, we're going to kill everyone's firstborn. It's really a left turn. Yeah. You know, I always kind of like, one thing I don't think too hard about it with respect to superhero movies, but one thing I always think about is like when sometimes in villains, when when they're broad enough that their goal is to want to like end the world, it's like, yeah, but like what's going to be around for you after that? Like what, what are you doing here? And here this guy like lives in a city that he wants to just drain of all of its energy. So sure, whatever. I mean it's it's kind of secondary because there's so much else going on in this movie. Uh, but 
you know, he he's, he's giving speeches about it, but then there's uh then there's just attacks on the city going on when he's trying to like do his thing by a you know a, a disgraced former circus troupe known as the Red Triangle Gang, and uh Batman 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 thwarts their efforts and uh but not not before Shrek uh before Shrek is kidnapped by the gang and he ends up uh being taken down to the uh the depths of Gotham and is uh then confronted by uh the the grown version of of, of Oswald Cobblepot himself who is now again uh known as the penguin and he wants him to you know help him kind of you know take over the city and uh build his reputation and uh and helping him just kind of quote unquote return to the surface I suppose and blackmails him and uh does all that and uh at the same time uh not long after that Selena Kyle Shrek's secretary played by Michelle Pfeiffer she kind of like learns some of his plans with respect to the city and he decides to throw her out a window but some uh some, some cats, cats bite her and bring her back to life I want look you've never seen this dumb what is your reaction to her laying in the snow convulsing her eyes rolling back as her head as cats bite her as a plot point what was your reaction to that? Well, so I never even want I, I mean, I've never like really consumed like much, uh, you know, Catwoman content besides like what you see in the in like the Nolan movie. And like, you know, you're not I'm getting sure you. This is nowhere else. In the <laughs> OK. Oh, OK. I, I didn't know her origin story because you don't really you're not getting that uh, in you're not getting that in um, in the Dark Knight Rises, you know. And so I'm I'm just like, OK, well, sure. I was just like, well, if Spider-Man can get bit by a spider, why can't Catwoman get bit by a cat? Yeah, I mean, that's some cats, yeah. I, I, so I, took, I, I really just like, I, I, I was just like, look, this it looks kind of ridiculous the way it's like you're seeing these cats just like lick her and bite her when she's, you know, Spider-Man didn't fall off a skyscraper. So, I mean, I, I had to kind of get past that, but I was like, look, I can't like really like, give them that much crap for like Catwoman's origin story when like it's not really, is it really that different from Spider-Man? Like I, I just, I, I didn't get that hung up on it, you know? Now, based on where we are in the plot, this is about 35 minutes into this movie, and I have to circle back to the four minutes that Batman are in it. And a massive shout out to Pat Tingle, who's playing Commissioner Jim Gordon, who pulls up to an active crime in progress just to tell somebody else to light the bat signal for a guy who is quite literally brooding in his house in the dark miles away. It'll be like, ah, whatever he gets here, we'll get through our jobs. Like some fine police work from Gotham, Gotham PD. Unbelievable. Since we recorded the Batman 1989 podcast, I've watched like 11 of the 12 episodes of Harley Quinn, the first season on oh, yeah. DC. So You're I mean, like, got Jim Gordon. <laughs> well, it's just like I just love that. I mean, it's it's a great show. We talked about it on that podcast, but it's just that 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 Jim Gordon is just such a sad sack. It's hilarious, yes. and it's just it's just kind of funny that like you know. The, the cops here are just like they're, they're just not great i'm like and yeah, their job um, is to call batman and then after he saves the day walk up to batman and exclaim thanks for saving the day i'm afraid the red circus gang is back thanks jim right so yeah, just they're not they're not doing a ton here and they're in the red circus tri- the, the, or the red triangle gang is just doing whatever they want mostly from for most of this movie and there's very few cops to be seen so you just gotta you just kind of gotta get past that you know i mean i some would argue that in uh in the year of 2021 in our world like we probably need the cops to be less visible so you know maybe we could take some you know maybe we could take some cues from this movie and i, I didn't mean to drag on and on with my plot synopsis nick but like i mean that it, it and i don't even mind that it takes that long to get going because like this movie is interesting so i'm not like i'm not like dragging i'm not like i'm not really like 
upset that it's like you know the setup is taking this long but that's basically what it is like you get to that point and you got Catwoman and at some point in order to basically the only other thing I was going to add is that Shrek is very upset that there's the mayor standing in his way of getting what he wants so he's you know like you know what I see this 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 penguin guy like I see a chance to like turn him into a certain kind of figure he has a tragic backstory and I I can make him mayor and I can then get my way and you know at a certain point, uh, Penguin, in order to kind of, you know, assist in his collaborative efforts, he starts wreaking havoc. But Catwoman, you know, she starts just like doing crazy Catwoman things. And, you know, what's the uh, explanation for that, by the way? I just got bit by some cats and now I can do bad flips like like there's not even there's not even like a throwaway line. It's like, oh, by the way, she used to be a gymnast. There is nothing to explain her backstory here. She's just a secretary who then starts kicking the shit out of people in the middle of the street. I, I, I again, I, I, I did have that thought. And I was like, because, you know, like, again, I'm using the Nolan movies as a reference point. You know, Batman Begins has a very, 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 it goes to great lengths to explain how Bruce learns all of the things he knows. Nah, so, she got bit by some cats. We're good here. And and she can just kick ass at that point. And even, like, her homemade costume, it's like, they, they the camera dwells on her, I don't, you want to call them claws, you want to call them fake nails, I don't know what you want to call them. It dwells on them a lot, as if, like to like make the point like she's gonna stab through batman's armor at some point but they it doesn't look that like intimidating like or it's just like it looks like they look like longer pieces of plastic that should just break you know this, this is right after she shoved the stuffed animals down the down the drain pipe or down the garbage disposal just for uh you know really just for tim burton's enjoyment at that point yeah i so i mean Again, I thought about it. Like I was still like intro, but I was able to get over it. You know, I and I, I mean, I guess I'm. I really haven't said it, but like, I don't know if I really like this movie. But like, as <laughs> as Nick had warned me beforehand, I'm like, okay, I sure I respect the weirdness, and there's like interesting stuff going on with enough of these characters that like, even if I'm like not totally clear on like whether or not I like what it builds to. It is certainly watchable, and that is my opinion. Nick, I know you rewatched this one, you you and you felt the need to rewatch it as opposed to not needing to rewatch the first eighty nine. Which I mean, I know you've seen all these movies a lot, but like, yeah. is there a reason you felt the need to rewatch this one? Is it just because you just know you'd have a lot of funny observations to share if you did get freshen up on it? I mean, or is it just because you have trouble deciding if you whether or not you like this movie because you're simply fascinated by it and you don't really have an opinion beyond that? All the above? Uh, no, I'll break it down more like this. This movie is not a Batman movie in any way because it's not even principally concerned with Batman. It could give a shit less about Batman. This is a Tim Burton movie with Batman characters in it. I think most films I watch that I think are weird upon first viewing, the more I watch them, I forgive the weirdness of the film or it gets progressively less weird or I accept it on its own terms. This is one of the few movies I can think of where like, I've seen this movie probably 25 times every time i watch it it gets more friggin bizarre josh is like this is the horniest movie i've ever watched in my life yeah i do not understand there is not a line of dialogue delivered by either danny devito or michelle pfeiffer that is not a sexual double entendre for two hours it's i'm not complaining about this but like choices were made by tim and i can't imagine why he got fired by mcdonald perhaps that's why well, I mean, I mean, I, I again, I'm sure his influence is felt there, but he didn't he didn't write the movie. He's not the writer. So uh, it's a, definitely a joint effort there. It's just funny that like, a, you know, not only is it like a Tim Burton movie, but it's like an extremely horny Tim Burton movie. As you yeah. said, it's like I get how you can sneak some stuff past the studio, but it's like, man, like that's it's Everyone. like that. It's like it's like it's one thing if it's just like if it's if it's stuff that's like more like not on the page. But it's like I'm assuming like someone above Tim Burton, at, like, uh, you know, at the studio, like actually like you know, 
looked at that like someone at Warner's had to have looked at that script at some point and it still got made. It's it's kind of like you'll we'll get there. We're two podcasts away. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's turn as Mr. Freeze is exclusively remembered by the number of freeze puns he manages to drop in two hours. Mm. This is that just with sexual double entendres, which, again, choices were made. Um, and there's also a scene where, <laughs> where DeVito, DeVito ends up actually like groping an intern while he tries to put a button on her. And I think this was right after he ended up eating fish. Like, like it's, it's not exactly on the radar. It's not subtle in any way. Here. Yeah. At one point he's bribed when he's trying to when when Shrek wants him to run for mayor. Uh, the selling point is unlimited poontang. Yes, and there's he, a line he, in this film. Unlimited poontang. <laughs> um, so I mean, look, it's it's fun to talk about, but like, you already kind of touched on it. It's just very odd that it's a Batman movie that is like unconcerned with Batman. The Penguin and Catwoman, I, I are given like they're just given much more substantive storylines, and you know that was my big takeaway from this is like, you know, I am not sure how to feel about it because like my favorite superhero movies are the ones that like aren't the ones that like put the put the uh put our hero on the run like i don't like those where it's like for one reason or another like someone tries to convince the authorities that like the superhero is the bad guy it's just it doesn't do a lot for me i, I don't i because I, I know it's not old that's not where the story is headed anyway i just always see it as a fake it feels like a waste of time and the, the movie goes there briefly but it doesn't really like commit to that either uh but like at the same time I, I want my hero to then like take on a compelling villain but what's weird is that like and like i, I like it when the villain has a point but at the same time it's like I don't know if I can't remember watching like a superhero movie where like ostensibly the two villains are like also this sympathetic and yeah, they're, they're horny and they're weird, but they're like also kind of sympathetic. So the, like the most, the most unlikable person in this movie is Shrek, I would say, but he's Max really, Chip, because Chip is playing all three Trump kids in one role and I can't get enough of it. <laughs> Chip, Chip Shrek might be my favorite character in, in all of fiction. Yeah, God, there, there. It's again. There, I guess we got to discuss that, and that there's like multiple Trump parallels, like like 23 years before we even thought about Donald Trump as a political, a serious, serious political figure. But like, you know, I, I'm talking about Max, I guess, because like Chip is like he's almost comic relief, because in the way like the Trump kids are comic relief, but like not quite comic relief, because unfortunately they like can cause real. harm they in exist. real life. Yeah, yeah, they can cause harm in real life, but it's like you know, Max is like the most the most unlikable of the villains and is like the least threatening. So I, you know, is this, the, I, I, this is the best performance of this film. I mean, I'm a, I'm a walking Mark, so that's fine. But like, uh, consider what we're being given here. And I think I'm underselling DeVito because he's doing a whole hell of a lot, but there, there's something just like positively delightful about Christopher Walken in this movie. His delivery is just, uh, he's being threatened by a penguin man in the sewer. And he decides to take, Exception to the idea that he would ever be called a monster. He goes, a monster, I don't know. Tough, maybe. Okay. Shrewd, sure. He's just... I liked him in that scene because he took it at face value, like probably more than he should have. <laughs> it's like he 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 likes he just has to start negotiating and like figuring out the situation. And he doesn't like as someone that's in that world as opposed to someone watching the movie he's not like as like confused or dumbfounded or like what the hell is going on uh he's not expressing those sentiments in the way that like a person probably should he's just like all right i got i gotta make the most of this right now and i'm not gonna he's not like assuming he's about to get murdered he's like all right i'm gonna negotiate with this weird looking dude and like christopher walken like yeah to a certain extent he always sounds like christopher walken but like i thought like it, it was I, I i i i thought it was still like for what these movies are, and like I get it, like it's more of a Tim Burton movie than the last one, but it, it it still accomplishes like what I said the last one did, in that like it's like man, there's some totally ridiculous stuff here, and there's like some 
stuff that tries to be pretty serious. Like it, it, it does, it does that again. It's like, I thought Christopher Walken, like within the, within the confines of this movie, like he's, he's playing like the evil billionaire, like in the right, in the right way. And that's like, okay, like this guy is like, we can take him seriously, but I can also acknowledge parts of the th- this that are ridiculous, whether it be his his hair, his son or whatever. He still like has some pretty evil goals. And I and I liked how he played that in a way that like didn't feel maybe like quite as quite cartoonish? as like cartoonish or quirky as a stereotypical stereotypical. I don't know. I, I, I can't lie and say if, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not thinking of a couple things off the top of my head. Maybe I'll look, but like, I don't know a lot of stuff besides like more modern Christopher Walken that came out like after Deer Hunter that I'm thinking of off the top of my head. Uh, it's like I, when you think of Christopher Walken, you think of a, him in a certain way. And I just think of him as like being a little more like, you know, like the stereotypical way that people like to do his voice. And you think of him, you know, doing that kind of thing. And I, I and Joe Dirt more or less. Yeah. Yeah, it felt like he was doing something. It felt like he was going for a little more here, and I appreciated that he was doing that within the confines of this weird Tim Burton movie. Yes. To your point about how did no one of Warner Brothers look at this, because <laughs> because I, you know I guess we can skip to the end here. This this gets Tim fired. He is not invited back for what becomes Batman Forever. I think there are I guess rumors or reports online that I guess once appeared in the trades about what Batman three would have looked like. We'll never know because it didn't get made because he was not invited back. When you're watching this film right about the point where DeVito explains to the rest of the red triangle gang that they're going to go out and kidnap all the children and kill them. There's a clown who I feel like is a stand in for somebody at the studio who just should have said to Burton at some point, he goes, uh, killing sleeping kids. Isn't that a little, uh, and then he, he gets shot, obviously, and rolls into the water. And DeVito's response is, no, actually, it's a lot. And I just feel like, I feel like that was the the interaction back and forth between the creative team and the studio. Be like, ah, you sure you guys want to do this? Yeah, we have, do. Have like one person like be the conscious here or something. And he's like, Burton's like, sure, I'll do that. And then I'll murder him. Yeah. Um, I, no, I, I, I could totally see that being the case. Uh, uh to the uninitiated that have like you know don't maybe don't know the background of these movies as well did he actually get fired or just not get invited back because i i you know what would be the difference in that case well i mean i just mean at the end of the last movie or at the end of the last podcast you suggested watching shadow of a bat or i guess which is which is a bit of a docu it's a series right of like i believe it started out as dvd extras but it's it's mostly um you know behind the scenes interviews of people looking back on their time. And but there's like multiple with, episodes for each of the movies or something. Uh, I believe more than half of it is dedicated to Batman 89. And then each successive sequel might get an episode. So if there's okay, six, so like the only the one, first three are devoted to the first movie. Okay. I was able to watch like 15 minutes of the one that was specifically on returns. Yes. And part of what I saw in that was that like, you know, it took him a little convincing to come do this movie. So what I mean by that is I didn't know if it was like, you know, they were they, they just didn't they didn't fire him. But like they just they did, they decided not to like try and convince him to come back because they're like, all right, we we don't really like we didn't like where this went. So we just won't like press him to make another one was what I was getting at. So I, I mean, I, I don't I don't I don't doubt that, like, you know, if he had a third year, if he had a third movie in his contract that they wouldn't have wanted, they wouldn't have wanted to get out of it or something. But like, I didn't know if it was like that acrimonious or not was what I was. Getting he wound at. up with a with an executive producer credit on Batman Forever just because, you know, anybody can wind up with an EP credit for anything. But it's been pretty clear, and I believe he's he's addressed this as well. He might even address it later in that documentary. Basically, I was not invited back for Batman 3. So 
Oh, so, okay. Well, f- and, well, and yeah, the, like, I've mentioned it twice now. The fine people at McDonald's were were promoting this film with their Happy Meals in 1992, <laughs> and were aghast with what they were seeing on the screen. And so, uh, I really like Batman Forever. I'm sure we'll get there. We don't need to do it now, but it's <clears throat> it's certainly a, a a stylistic and and bit of a tonal shift, and you'll you'll see it. Well, fair enough. So I guess well. So my overall take, like what I, that, I, that I was getting at earlier, was just that, like, you know, you were talking earlier about, like, if you you mentioned you think that Walken might be the best performance in the movie, which is like, you know, I I, I wouldn't argue that much with that point if that's some a, a conclusion anyone would come to. As I tried to explain before, like, I I really think it's kind of impressive that he like it feels like he's doing something different than what a lot of the things that people know him most for. Uh, but like the one thing I texted you after I watched it was that. You know, I felt like Michelle Pfeiffer was doing the Jack Nicholson thing in that it felt like she was just getting to be weird and just go all out and do whatever she wanted. But, man, I, I felt like the veto is like going above and beyond for something more. And I really respected it. That was kind of like my take. And it's like as vile and horny and obscene as that guy is, the fact that he is at all sympathetic is like it's just incredible to me and i'm and and under that much makeup and prosthetics it's like i i mean i i it's it's absolutely wild and my my thing is like i don't know what this movie ultimately builds towards it's like again my point is that it's very weird that like the two main villains like they don't it doesn't care about batman and it like makes these two villains like and it doesn't it makes these two villains like quite sympathetic so it's like okay what are we even doing here by the end where it's like man like i don't even really dislike who are like the two villains that are mainly on the action. So I don't know if like, I don't know if this, these last two hours and change were like all that, like if they, if it actually built towards something, all that, like that felt like all that complete of a story, but I didn't really care because like, I was still just fascinated watching this Danny DeVito performance. So I guess my question is like, do you think it ultimately like comes together as a movie as a whole? And if it doesn't, are you kind of with me? And then it's like, I don't really care. Cause I like watching all this other stuff that they just threw out there anyway. It doesn't come together at all for the title character. I think that's that's where it might fall apart. Like, mm-hmm. I think DeVito has a fascinating... It's not an arc, and he probably can't go on, but, like, it's a tragic story, right? So I guess it's not an arc because he didn't learn anything. He didn't change it anyway throughout the movie. It's merely a tragic story. Um, I guess we're led to believe that, that Catwoman is still alive at the end of the movie, though, for myriad reasons. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer does not return in, in a... Uh, in a sequel to this I, okay. I enjoy the film I don't enjoy it as a Batman film if that makes sense like I continue to watch it I continue to get a kick out of it I think it's weirder every time but I think it fails as like a an entry in the Batman canon and I think we talked a little bit about this last time how as the years have gone on all of these films have benefited from the fact that they no longer have the weight of being like a much more important entry in a series. So now that we have three Chris Nolan films, we have some divisive Zack Snyder films. We're going to have a Matt Reeves film. Suddenly this really grossly bizarre Tim Burton sequel can be appreciated on its own terms. And that's where I am with it. So with respect to the Penguin's arc, then I get, I guess my, my, the thing is like, I feel something when the penguins march him into the water when he dies. Now, I feel something because I think those penguins are great. I would like to have them as pets. But, like, (laughs) I I enjoy that scene to no end. I think there's a scene very early on 
where where Walken gets kidnapped and he turns around and there's just a massive like emperor penguin sitting there standing with a face that just like sort of squawks at him. And I've watched that on repeat countless times. Yeah, I I I love I love penguins too. Well, I I know you're also a listener of the Dan Levitar show. You got to, have you listened to today's podcast yet? No, not today's. What did I there's, there's, something penguin related. There's there was a lot of stuff penguin related and, okay. and with and, and with their bodily functions and uh, oh, all good. that. So I I had to I had to go there, but like I'm 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 also very into penguins as uh as a creature. But I guess like you know. One like yeah, if you give a character that backstory, like there, like yeah, I guess there's some level of like built-in sympathy, but it go it goes beyond that because like I do feel like like you really like kind of feel for him because it's so clear that like as disgusting as he is, Oswald just like he he does have some like base desire just to like be liked by the general public that he's like felt like an outcast from for like his whole life, and you know I don't want to like uh overstate like any kind of donald trump comparisons because like that wasn't donald trump's background like and that because he was like born into a life of privilege but the fact is like i think there are some parallels in that like he's like kind of they're like they're both kind of like physically disgusting and uh and and and, and, and treat women in inappropriate ways and in spite of that are in theory able and, and like in in engage like in illegal acts that like are not all that like well hidden from the press and in spite of that, like, is able to, in theory, achieve some level of adoration from the general public and, like, achieve political success. And, hey, what does that say about society? And it's somewhat interesting that, like, Tim Burton and company were asking that question back in 1992. And I, and I enjoyed – One of my notes here is, is Oswald Cobblepot the next governor of California? So, so this is still things that we're dealing with now almost 30 years later. Yeah, it's – and I guess that was part of why I wanted to give the movie credit because I liked that it had that kind of foresight to like, you know, hell, maybe maybe that I'm watching it now. Maybe if I was watching this in 92, I would have been in shit. Like, you obviously like had your opinions formed on this movie before I ever thought of Donald Trump as a political figure. But like, so who knows? Maybe if I had watched this in 2013, I would have been like, this is just like too hokey of a plot. But that because I was watching it in 2021, I was like, Oh, man, like this is actually kind of incisive. This is a fascinating broader point that shit that used to be completely unthinkable and cartoonish, like our society has now devolved to the point where you're like, "Eh, this this outrageously horny Tim Burton Batman film from 1992 (laughs) really has a lot of interesting thoughts on our current political discourse. What What the hell is going on? Right. So I, I, I it works as a Tim Burton movie, like even before you get to our politics of the last six years. But, you know, maybe like me personally. I write it off if I watch it seven years ago more so than I watch it now, and like that's just that's just me. I could see my I could see me doing that, but like I I hadn't seen this movie until four days ago. So what do you know? So I mean, let's just say pre two thousand fifteen. What about what about Oswald's arc really like made it so this was a movie that stuck with you and something that you kept revisiting as many times as you said you've had. I don't think it was anything about that arc necessarily that would have brought me back to it as much as I'm just a, you know, crazed Batman fan. So I'll take what I can get. But you already said it. You already said you don't think of it as a Batman movie. So it's more just like, are you just like captivated by DeVito's performance? I am. Absolutely. And, And I think the if he does have an arc, it's the idea that he's clearly a bad person from Jump Street. Gets sort of seduced by the idea that he could be loved. And there's there's a very there's a line in there where he says, 
well, as he's sort of announcing his, himself to the people of Gotham City, I am not an animal, I'm a human being. And when he is then very quickly spurned by that same crowd an hour later, returns to his lair and shouts again, I am not a human being, I am an animal. So it's basically somebody being like, I am this way, maybe I could be better, maybe I could be accepted, maybe I could be loved, for albeit for all the wrong reasons, but maybe those things are possible and no, this is my role in life and this is the role I'm most comfortable in. So that's sort of, that's the ride that character takes from maybe I could be accepted to I'm going to kidnap and kill your firstborn child. Now, killing <laughs> sleeping kids, is that a little? Uh, no, it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> As you mentioned earlier, the movie does have its own little um I wouldn't even call it a Greek chorus. It has it has the one clown who's the like, one clown, the one clown who for five seconds gets to be like, what are we doing? So, yeah. And I again, like they, they make the choices to make him uh, incredibly horny and incredibly like vile in a way where he doesn't even hide it. You know, he's just like he's that much of an ogre and like, you know, not and it's not not understandable because of you know, the way he was raised, you know, you just kind of got to accept that someone like that, like might not like really like see the downside in just like biting off a guy's nose in front of a crowd full of people that in theory, like are there to like, you know, support him or, uh, I don't want to be too flippant, but like, I'm hesitant to, to assign too much weight or meaning to this film beyond Tim Burton just wanted to be weird as hell. I'm here for that too. I just like, it's a podcast. So I was trying to like, (laughs) Okay, I was trying to give point. more credit. Like I, you know, you know, I'm I, I'm always here for just like being like, all right, you don't got to think about this director any further. And yeah, I I've been like rambling about like any parallels to like Donald Trump and like Tim Burton probably could not have conceived of what would who would be elected president uh 24 years later in his home country, which I didn't know till about 20 until about an hour ago when you told me, oh no, yeah, he actually isn't British. But like, yeah, so I am like I am like fine just like chalking it up to him being weird, but it's like. Man, I I still want to like it, it. It's hard to like come across like a character as weird as this yeah. version of the penguin without like trying to understand like why would you go there? But if Tim Burton's like, I just feel like going there, then like I will accept that as well. Do you ascribe the same line of thinking to Michelle Pfeiffer's Selena Kyle? Because there are a lot of extremely weird choices there as well. Before I answer that, I am glad that I think we just organically came up with new branding for The Rewind. The Rewind, it's a podcast. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I enjoy both of these performances, not necessarily because I enjoy these takes on the characters, um, but because of how committed they are. I mean, both of them throw any kind of uh, caution to the wind, DeVito in terms of the grotesquery and... Michelle Pfeiffer sort of, you know, being the more mousy secretary character she plays at the beginning of this film and then just being completely untethered by the end of it. Um, I think they both do fantastic jobs. I thought it was actually funny less than a year ago watching Wonder Woman 89 because so much, even though these films have nothing in common tonally, so much of the way that movie was structured actually reminded me of Batman Begins. Uh, or Batman Returns, rather, because yeah, of like, the like weird cheap parallels between Kristen Wiig's character yeah. and what Michelle Pfeiffer's doing here. But also, more importantly, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, how little that movie seemed interested in its protagonist. Like, that is a movie about Max Lord. So it's, and 
and uh, I guess the cheetah. Like that's that's not a movie that's concerned with Wonder Woman. And when I was watching it, I was like, wow, this really reminds me of a 90s Batman film where we've lost interest in the protagonist. Because Michael Keaton has the least to do of anyone in this film. Yeah, it might have been the first time we actually said his name so far. Yeah, he's just not involved. I'm right right there with you as far as, uh, you know, kind of enjoying the the transformation that Selena goes on. It's just so I knew that, like, Catwoman wasn't a, a quote unquote good guy. Just but again, my only point of reference for that was Dark Knight Rises. So sure. I wasn't really expecting anything like like that. But like I, I at a certain point, I was like, I, I didn't know if it necessarily like set it up to like fully understand why she like ultimately does what she does like i like the idea of like that origin story and it it is a little more explicit i guess in this movie than it is like saying wonder woman 1984 where like here it's like clearly like it's a woman that has not just not been treated well in the workplace and overlooked and i and i I, i'm completely here for that person kind of transforming into someone that like obviously has some kind of grudge against those kind of like um max streck type of characters in the corporate world or whatever when you know they might undergo uh that kind of transformation uh but at the same time i i don't know if i was like totally like getting uh what her aims were as catwoman but that might be another example of me over analyzing it and not just accepting that like she's gonna like uh tim burton's gonna like take advantage of the fact that he has a performer that is willing to go for it and is gonna be like super weird and just like take on the role of being a villain i might not need to ascribe much more meaning to like why she might like be so anti-batman specifically uh as opposed to just uh max shrek type of character anti-max shrek type of characters but like i again i didn't like get that hung up on it because i really enjoyed seeing michelle pfeiffer trying uh, go for it, for lack there's of a better a, there's term. There's a level of absurdity in this movie that you sort of throw out, like, some concerns about, like, well, what's everyone's motivation here? You're just like, this is so weird that I'm along for the ride. What I will say is that she so inhabited this character that I encourage anyone listening to this to find this video because it is available on social media and probably on YouTube. The scene where she's in the shopping mall where she takes the whip mm-hmm. and knocks the heads off the mannequins, she really did that in one mm. thing. Really? Yes. So if you find this video, she does it. She's all proud of herself. And then they hit cut. And then, you know, if you're watching the movie, you see her, I think, um, skipping rope or skipping with her whip. Rather, there's a cut in there where everybody on set just starts cheering because she actually did it. And so um, you have to give her all the credit in the world for, um, I guess, the athletic feat of it, but also really actually inhabiting that character. Man, we just we just did the Suicide Squad podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and Margot Robbie had did that whole thing where she un- strangled Actually a dude out and did that gymnast feat of whatever the house however she got out. Yeah, of the so gym. it's kind of it's kind of funny to re- think there was hey there was a DC movie where someone did something that was arguably like just as impressive in some ways like uh, twenty more than twenty five years prior to that. So uh, that's pretty cool. I did not see that about Michelle Pfeiffer. So I that's kind of cool to that know video. that. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, because I, I I mean I don't. I guess that goes to kind of the way it was shot or whatever, but like I, I wasn't sure if that was a special effect or not. So it's cool to hear that because like the way the whip you would never be able to tell. Right. Well, the way the whip looks, I'm like, I, I and versus like how far away those guys were in theory standing from her. I couldn't, I didn't actually realize like where she is holding the whip and how long the whip looks. I didn't realize the whip was long enough to actually reach where those guys were who looked like they were further away from her. So I, I, I kind of like assumed in my head as I was watching it, that that was like, 
just like they did kind of some kind of sleight of hand to make that happen, make it look like it all was like in one smooth motion. So that that is uh, that's pretty darn cool. And I, I I respect that she like not only went all out in, you know, just creating this like uh, very, very distinct, weird character that uh, but also like obviously like physically like uh, learned the part, too. So before before we gloss over it entirely, I do want to give a quick report on Michael Keaton's Batman. And based on the fact that we spent all of our time <laughs> talking about everyone else, we can keep this brief. Uh, <clears throat> his death toll in this film. I only counted one specific murder. Um, I might have I might have missed some stuff at the end because uh, I was really focused on the beginning of this film. I counted that he lit three people on fire. I didn't say that they were necessarily dead, but he lit three people on fire. Uh, the guy where he put the bomb in his pants and shoved him down in the sewer, that guy's absolutely dead. <laughs> okay. And the look on Keaton's face, just as he did that, he gets this, like, this really weird homicidal look in his face, and then the guy blows up. So that, that person is assuredly dead. Uh, so his total body count in 89 might be higher because I am positive that everyone at Axis Chemical is dead. Nice. But this is this is an explicit homicide for Batman in this movie. Also So where did uh, where did all that stuff come from in Batman v Superman? Everyone was so mad about him killing people, but like this is the second straight Batman movie now I've seen where he kills dudes. Because so so for the majority of the comic canon, you know, Batman Batman rather famously doesn't kill people. Now Tim Burton's just doing whatever he wants and it's a really low bar in the early 90s for like what we'll accept from a Batman movie because the, the last thing we had before that was an Adam West film in 1966. So people are more willing to deal with some stuff. But like traditionally, this has always been a character who hasn't killed. And then... Okay, so it's, just, it's film, just Tim Burton going dark. Is what you're correct, which, which is what this whole movie is. Um, and then the Nolan films obviously go out of their way to make that like a crucial plot point for three films uh, so that when Zack Snyder shows up, you know, that's that's where that outcry, uh, you know, that outcry comes from. Uh, so we have Batman killing people and then Bruce Wayne in one of my favorite Bruce Wayne lines ever uh, points out how much Batman saved in property damage alone. Like, <laughs> geez, I mean, just think of the amount of money this guy saved in property damage alone. Terrific. I didn't actually have time to read as many reviews as I wanted to. I think I went back and read Roger Ebert's and like one other and. Some one of the reviews I read like made a point of the escalating newspaper war that this movie kind of depicts in the background, and yeah. I was like, I did not actually think that much of it as I watched it on my first watch. But then when I read that review, I was like, all right, I need to go back and like try and pick up on this a little bit. And maybe that review overstated it a bit. It might be more media as a whole than newspapers, because uh, like you see a lot of press conferences and the way that Penguin is manipulating the media, but. Right. There's the scene where uh, where Bruce and Selena are like walking down the street and just like talking about like what the press got wrong and all that. Right. And I so like I certainly got a kick out of like the, pro the, the 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 property damage comment as well. But it was like uh, I, I don't know if Burton was like trying to say anything about the media itself or if you, Nick, have thoughts on that as well. But like I'm not going to lie when I, I – even before I actually read that specific point about the escalating newspaper war, I certainly had thoughts about the way that, like, heck, our media can be manipulated into, like, depicting things in, like, a certain way if the right person gives the right soundbite. Uh, what this did you think about the political conversation that, that we had just moments ago about how this 
like what would have been satire in this movie no longer feels like satire 30 exactly and i I didn't want to like go there too much because you like kind of intimated like hey i may be ascribing a little too much foresight to tim burton but like it's something you can't help but think about when you see the way people are reacting to penguins so i didn't know like uh beyond uh selena and bruce laughing off the fake news did you like have any other takeaways from from the way in which the press is utilized in this movie I suppose it's just that the people of Gotham are an angry mob, right? Mm-hmm. And that they'll they'll buy into anything um, because you you have Batman literally like spinning a CD at one point. Uh, and I, I know I started this this podcast with a harp from Hell line, but like it's amazing that the entire city rises up to support this guy who looks like a penguin who they know nothing about, and then after like. 30 seconds and some gunshots. Now we're all chasing him back into the sword. Like it's, it's absurdist and it seems satirical, but based on everything we've lived through in the last five to six years, like things that were once satirical no longer feel that way. And so uh, while I, with other, you know, I I generally don't ascribe a lot of meaning to this film. um, (laughs) And I think that that Tim Burton is just doing weird shit for the sake of it. Um, it certainly plays a lot differently in 2021 than it did even in 2014 or 15. Well, yeah, well, I don't want to like, uh, dwell too much on Batman because we, as, as we already discussed, he's, it's not really a movie about Batman, but, uh, even if they didn't, uh, focus too much on him, do you at least feel like where they pick up with him, it feels of a piece with where they left off in Batman 89 in, in, in so much as like. We are. We see him romancing Selena and uh, making reference to prior relationships, or just right. like, or or just like the, with whatever screen time Keaton has, does it seem like it's consistent with like where we left Bruce in 1989? It's certainly the same character, um, mm-hmm. in a way that it'll become very clear that it it isn't so much in the next film. Mm. So yes, I I think I think it's of a piece. I think it's it's recognizable. Obviously, they mentioned his backstory. I think he, he explicitly says to Alfred at one point while he's reaching into a fish tank, who, hey, who let Vicky Vale into the Batcave? Um, speaking of Alfred and, and the two of them just sitting in Wayne Manor, my favorite line in this film is Bruce just absentmindedly sucking into some soup and being outraged that it's cold, only for Alfred to inform him <laughs> that it's fishy swa, Josh, and that it's supposed <laughs> to be cold. Um that, sound, that is the only thing I've learned from this movie. And now that I know the vicious, now I know vicious was cold and I get to impress people at parties with that, with that information. All right. Well, I mean, I want, I, 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 I don't, I, after hearing that, I had no desire to eat Vichy Swab, but I would like an invite <laughs> to the next party you're at that serves it. Cause that seems like the kind of place I don't want to at least like hang out a little bit, even if I don't want to eat certain hors d'oeuvres that are being served. Wouldn't so. that be a great gimmick just to throw a party and the only thing available is Vichy Swab? <laughs> this sounds disgusting. I don't even know what Vichy Swab is. I, 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 it just sounds like it might involve it's some kind of. It's cold. I know that. It might, it sounds like something kind of seafoody to me. And I, I, I just, I'm not a fan of any kind kind of see i'm not I'm, I'm not a big seafood person to begin with let alone like cold stuff i don't eat sushi it's like eh. so it's like hearing vichy swa and cold it, it just kind of gave me like some like icky vibes um uh, we can't abandon this entirely so so it is a chilled potato in leek soup oh i like potatoes um you, so you might you might like it 
it sounded like some kind of like seafoody like um like seaweedy type of thing that's the vibe i got when i heard it so i appreciate you uh doing the research i would i would take a bite of it uh for sure i don't know if i would take a bite of it if you told me it was some kind of fish dish that was cold so uh i appreciate that and i will uh if i find myself at a fancy cocktail party when they tell me that i will be i i will have like a funny reference to make i suppose once again because i'm not letting this go according to wikipedia a thick soup made of boiled and pureed leaves onions potatoes cream and chicken stock it is traditionally served cold but according to this josh can be eaten hot all right uh, i think we've run the gamut on vichy swap <laughs> i i mean like it, it, it is it is a it is a great moment that like alfred would know that and bruce wouldn't uh, yeah, I I I I like that. It's a, it's a cool character moment in a movie that doesn't have that many character moments with respect to its title character. Yes. Um, uh, do you did, did did you have any other Bruce Wayne or Batman thoughts you wanted to say? Like I I want to I want to give you one more chance for that before you get off because I don't mind that we did a whole podcast on this without talking about the title character because again that wasn't really what the movie was about but it feels weird to have a Batman podcast where you don't really talk about Batman. Uh, neither Batman nor Alfred in these two films seem particularly concerned about his identity. Uh, so Alfred's just letting Vicky Vale into the Batcave, and then here's Bruce Wayne at the end of this film just ripping off his mask in front of people. Um, well, do you think he's leads you, to did, one of well, the great one-liners to, of this well, film? Well, to that point, did you like? I guess the last thing, did you like have any? Did you buy that? Did you buy there being any kind of connection with him and Selena? Because I think that's where him doing that comes from. I think it's a little underserved. Like maybe you repurpose this film to focus more on that relationship. Because if you really think about it, you play it out, considering how damaged her character is, it actually says a lot about Keaton's character that he would be attracted to that. And I think there's a way to play on that. They do it somewhat well in the limited amount of time that's devoted to it. And he gives like a little bit of a ham handed speech at the end about how they're the same split Mm -hmm. right down the middle. Um, but if you were to actually like dive into that, it would it would explain to you just how sort of like screwed up and broken this person is uh, beyond putting on a bat costume. There's not mm-hmm. a lot of time devoted to it, but um, it probably works better than it has a right to is where I would put it. Yeah, I, I, I like their chemistry. Uh, it, I, I When I thought about it after I kind of went back and rewatched parts yesterday, they, I don't know if they shared the screen all that much more than uh, he and Ken Basinger did in 1989. But, uh, you know, they definitely have some sort of like they have some similarities with respect to their uh, double lives that like he can't really say that he had with Vicky. And and I thought they're, they're just the chemistry of the performers themselves was enough that like I I almost I probably bought it even a little more so than I did with his connection with Vicky. So that counts for something, even if like, you know, maybe it's on the whole under bait when they're trying to like you know kind of sell you on some of the other types of connections they have or the fact that he's even comfortable revealing himself to her though i kind of get where that comes from so take that for what you will but again it's a movie called batman returns it's not really about batman so i don't feel that much more need to uh talk about batman but uh i you know i still like i said in the 89 podcast like i i still like keaton but you know I guess this was the end of the road for him. So it's kind of funny that like he played like such a massive character and like for only two movies and in one of them was like top billing in one and then was ignored in the other. Yeah, it's a it's a very weird arc. And I, I know I didn't know that, you know, a lot of people 
talked when when Birdman came out in 2014, a movie that I really liked, and mm-hmm. talked about how it's like you know kind of a play on him being in these movies, or it, it's it's somewhat of a commentary on the, him having been in these movies. I didn't, you know, I hadn't seen these movies, so I, I have a different appreciation for them now, and it's kind of funny in a way that, like, hey, you know, his presence in them in some ways is just kind of, like, c- cut off at the knees, and it's, it's, you know, I like his performance, but it's, it's, it's interesting that, like, someone would, like, not that he signed up to be that marginalized, but it's, it's interesting that, like, there weren't a whole lot of other live action superhero movies being made at this point in time. And like, you know, it's, it makes some serious choices with respect to his title character. It's, it's interesting. That's what I'll, I guess, I guess that's what I'll say though. It's not the most um, helpful way to describe it. So. And the next two movies in the series, which are no longer directed by Tim Burton, both of them are picked up by Joel Schumacher run into the same problems with both Val Kilmer and George Clooney. And we will obviously be doing podcasts on these as well, but (laughs) Those are two other movies that devote a whole lot of time to their villains. I will say that Val Kilmer gets more to do than Keaton did in either film. Hmm. Um, George Clooney gets a bit to do in what is um, an inarguably horrible film. Ah. Um, but I almost feel like that is the sort of through line of all four films that they are more invested in everything happening around the title character than the arc of the title character. And I think that's beyond just tone and quality is, is a way to really contrast them with what Chris Nolan did, where even though Heath Ledger ends up winning an Academy Award and there's, there's some very uh, memorable performances from whether it's Chillian Murphy and Hathaway, Tom Hardy, Tom Wilkinson, take your pick. Um, those are three movies that are primarily about Bruce Wayne, whereas these are four movies that could give less of a shit about Bruce Wayne. It's interesting to hear you say that about Batman and Robin because, like, I, I didn't even I didn't even quite understand. And like, you had told me that you thought Forever was better than that, but I didn't understand until I happened to Google them before we like signed on for this particular podcast. Like, the reviews for Batman and Robin are like that bad. So, oh god, yes, yeah. I'm so I'm still like I'm still definitely excited to like uh kind of watch it and understand why. But it's it's funny to hear that like all of these movies made those choices with respect uh, to Batman. Uh, Nick, any other final thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, well, we'll be picking up with a totally different film in Batman Forever, which just is a preview uh, for anybody who's familiar with Jim Carrey's career. This is the most over-the-top performance of Jim Carrey's career. That might sound crazy, given everything else you've ever seen him in. Uh, I would put this up with anything he's ever done in terms of just general scenery chewing. Um, we did talk about this just a bit on the 89 pod, but I, I want to bring it back because we're now at the midpoint of the series where Tim Burton has been fired. So mm. Batman 89, loved by all, or I should say loved by most, immensely successful. Batman Returns is weird enough, divisive enough, Burtony enough to get him removed. You're now going to enter into two films, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, where Forever once again, very popular, very commercially successful, mostly critically successful, only to give way to another film two years later that is going to end Batman on film for eight years. So it's really a weird roller coaster of highs and lows where we start high, valley, come back up, and we are going to valley in a big way again. I looked at, no, Batman Forever has 39% in Rotten Tomatoes. So, But made a ton of money. 
And well, I, you, I, I guess I would say if I had to draw a distinction that it was probably that it's popular with people in a way that it probably wasn't with critics. Cause there's, there's all sorts of times where there's a lot of division between an audience sort of reaction and more of a critical reaction. Oh, clearly. Uh, yeah, it was just, I, when you said that, like it was yeah. good with the critics, it was definitely better with the critics than, uh, Batman and Robin from, what I, I don't saw, think you I was, could get worse with critics than Batman. And Robin. Yeah. yeah, was yeah. It, like a nine. It was it's 12 low. on Rotten Tomatoes. And some people like to give Rotten Tomatoes shit, but it sounds like they they weren't that far off from based on what you were saying for how, like, you know, most people feel about it. So yeah. uh, it's certainly – I'm curious to see how it looks different as someone that hasn't seen any of these movies, and I appreciate anyone that is, like, uh, sticking with us as we go through this series because I'm enjoying getting an education on it uh, from Nick and from watching these movies myself, though it sounds like I'm about to go into, like, a very different direction. It was kind of funny that it sounds like – you know, like they wanted someone like a little more, um, you know, tame. And it, it, it doesn't, I mean, it sounds like these other movies are still kind of weird that we're about to watch from what I understand. They're exceptionally and, weird. And uh, it's just funny. Like that, that is my understanding of like uh, Joel Schumacher, like as a filmmaker, like not exactly like the most like, you know, down the middle type of guy um, by, by all accounts from everything I know about him. And like, I, I guess, I mean, I know he made some like more regular like live action movies in his day but like it's just like my my understanding of these movies it's like it's not like they got the most like traditional thing so i'm curious to see like what it ultimately looks like based on like what i've heard about them so it's really a left turn from like more of a tim burton sort of art house weird idiosyncratic film to like popcorn spectacle blockbuster that's the mm. term Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I, I might have been overstating my knowledge of Joel Schumacher, but yeah, he actually did a lot of stuff. I'm just like looking at it. It's like I've seen, I guess I've seen Phone Booth and I've seen uh, A Time to Kill. Time to Kill, certainly. Yes, and, they deserve design. And, and, like, and like St. Elmo's Fire. So yeah, he did a lot of different stuff. So funny choice. Uh, Nick, do you want to plug anything, social media, something else you've been watching, anything else before we sign off? Uh, I just watched Blade Runner 2049 again, and it holds it's up. Good. It's, it, it's that, that so good. It's that I like it way better than the original, actually. Um, I do too. Um, I think there's more to it. Uh, like I, I feel like in the way that the original is all aesthetic, and and it's the aesthetic is meaningful enough that like it it influenced a generation of directors, and people still watch that film. That movie's all aesthetic. Blade Runner 2049. Um, is a significantly better story. Speaking of aesthetic, yeah, no, and I, I totally agree on that story point, but speaking of just the general Blade Runner aesthetic, I, uh, within, you know, within a day of us recording this, though it will have come out well before people listen to this, I will be curious if you watch Reminiscence, uh, which... I have not yet, but it's on my list, and then uh, both... The entire Nolan family is just... I'm at the end of my rope here, so I can't wait for Reminiscence based on the reviews. Yeah, I, I only watched the first season of Westworld, as I said, on that podcast, though. It just oh, well, it goes downhill from there. Yeah, and I, which is, like, I just had trouble getting motivated to watch it, but, like, I've talked about Christopher Nolan a lot with you, and he is obviously a family member of Lisa Joy, who I think actually, as I said on the Reminiscence podcast, had, like, a, a very clearly had a really interesting, like, visual sense of what she wanted the world to be that she created in that movie. I just, I didn't love the rest of the movie, but, like, as... I, you know, I described it to my my friend Fred that did that podcast with me as like, you know, in some ways, like a mix of Chinatown, Blade Runner and Minority Report. 
and you would think all of those things are great so why isn't it any good (laughs) yeah exactly so i I, that's why as someone that like likes the blade runner aesthetic which you know this movie has a blade runner aesthetic but like what if blade runner aesthetic but like a version of like miami in the future that has been like ravaged by climate change and is half underwater you would think that's like very interesting and even more so to someone like you that like lives in florida now but like I, that's why I'm like curious to hear what you think if you get around to reminiscence because I feel like as someone that I like will. knows the Nolan family you might be kind of curious so uh, how much alcohol throw, am I going to need for that one look it's not like it, you don't need as much alcohol as you do to uh, not as much alcohol as you need to get through Tenet uh, so th- there you got that um, but yeah as usual I'm Josh Chernovoy J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-I on Twitter and Letterbox. podcast Twitter is at the round movie pod podcast Gmail is the round movie pod at gmail.com uh, as always thanks to everyone for listening we are going to continue this series with Batman forever so uh, stay tuned for that and uh, thanks again for listening we'll see you next time and thanks to Nick for joining